Side Hustle Show 316. This is YouTube for bloggers. How one mom turned her accidental YouTube channel into a full-time income and her advice on how you can do it too. What's up? What's up? Nick Loper here. Welcome to the Side Hustle Show because your nine to five may make you a living, but your five to nine makes you alive. Awesome show for you today on a topic I see as a huge area of opportunity, not just for myself, but for side hustlers and entrepreneurs in general, and that is YouTube. We've seen a few examples on the show recently, like Nate Dodson a couple weeks ago, where YouTube is a major traffic driver and point of discovery, and in his case, sits at the top of a sales funnel pulling in tens of thousands of dollars a month. Still, YouTube can be a tough channel to crack, and that's why I invited Meredith Marsh on the show this week to school me on all things YouTube, and specifically YouTube for bloggers. If you're already creating content online, you have some unique advantages that adding video to might be like dumping gasoline on the fire. So Meredith hosts the VidProMom YouTube channel and blogs at vidpromom.com, and she also hosts the Video Pursuit podcast, but she has 30,000 subscribers on YouTube and has turned this little side hustle experiment into a full-time income. Stay tuned to this episode to learn how to set your channel up for success, how to master the YouTube algorithm to reach more people, and how to make money from your new video content. Notes and links from this episode, plus the free PDF highlight reel with all of Meredith's top tips from the call are at sidehustlenation.com slash Meredith. That's M-E-R-E-D-I-T-H. But back to YouTube, why should you care? It's the second largest search engine for one, so ignoring it could be costing you. I'll be back with my top takeaways from this call with Meredith after the interview. Ready? Let's do it. What I love about YouTube is the instant SEO aspect of it. As bloggers, we're used to publishing written content and then kind of crossing our fingers and waiting for Google's bots to crawl and index our new blog post. And that can take sometimes a while. Sometimes it's maybe a day and sometimes it's a week or two. And with YouTube, it's instant. It's totally instantaneous. And it's a search and recommendation engine. So it's not just people searching for things and going through the search results. Once you watch a video, YouTube recommends the next video. It's kind of trying to predict the viewer's behavior. And so it'll recommend videos based on what this person is interested in. So you want to be in that pool of recommended videos. And that's why I like YouTube. Well, let's dive into each of those. Any First on this recommendation engine, have you found any tips or tricks to get your videos noticed in that sidebar or in the app, like down below the video that's playing to get recommended? YouTube wants, like their ultimate goal is to keep viewers on YouTube. And so as a content creator on YouTube, your ultimate goal should be pretty much about the same, (laughs) except maybe you want to keep people on your YouTube channel. What YouTube looks for, what the algorithm looks for is videos that people are watching like the whole video or at least like more than half of the video. So that's how it's like sort of the signal that YouTube uses to determine is this a helpful or interesting or entertainment video or not? Are people actually watching the whole thing? And so 
you want to create videos that are going to hold people's interest through the whole video. And that's how YouTube says, hey, we should recommend this to other people that are interested in this topic. Okay. So create good content. Remember, it's a search engine using keywords and stuff in the title and description of the video and keep YouTube's goal in mind to keep people on YouTube so they can make more ad money. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. And and that's really interesting that you can get ranked instantly. If you create a video for target keyword, you can show up on the first page of the YouTube search results versus maybe never in Google. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. Now, does the channel authority, so if I want to get an article ranked, my domain authority as a blogger is going to play a pretty big role in that if I want to get, especially without doing any link building in getting that page ranked. Is it the same for YouTube? Is there like a channel authority component to the algorithm or it doesn't matter? Like anybody could start today, create a video on whatever topic it is and, and have that start to show up in the rankings. Mm, That is a good question. Instead of thinking of it as a channel authority, since YouTube is really paying attention to what the audience is doing, what each viewer is actually doing, whether they're watching a full video, half videos. So to answer your question, no, but (laughs) YouTube is looking at like what your channel, like what channel your niche is kind of the authority in. And so I think that is taken into account. But ultimately, if you start a channel today and you have zero subscribers and you publish a video that is well-researched and perfectly optimized and is interesting enough to keep people's attention until the end, then YouTube would have every reason to rank and recommend that video because if viewers are watching it, they want people to keep watching it. So it's in line with their goals of keeping people on YouTube. Okay. So that makes sense. What niche is your channel an authority in versus just whatever random smattering of videos and home movies you want to throw up there. Similar to writing a blog, like give people a reason to subscribe, give people a reason like, okay, what am I going to learn from this person? What niche can I channel in? Well, maybe tell me about starting your YouTube channel, the VidPro Mom channel, because today it's like you're a YouTube celebrity, tens of thousands of subscribers, but it started as a blog first, right? Well, the idea started as a blog. I kind of... In my mind, I set out to be a blogger. And when I finally decided on a niche, I wanted to help families kind of be more intentional about creating and capturing family moments, whether that was through video or photos or whatever. The more I thought about it and started to research my topics, I realized that there was a pretty big gap in the whole video creation side of things for people who are just creating videos for fun. There's no gap in tutorials for how to be a professional filmmaker. It's like, that's all over YouTube. But for the people who just are wondering, how do I use this camera more effectively as just a hobby? There wasn't very much on that or like kind of from that perspective. So when I realized I was going to teach people how to create family videos, basically, that's what it was at first. I thought this seems like it would be a good idea for these to be like some sort of a video tutorial. And it was seemed like a no brainer that those would have to be on YouTube as a place to sort of host those videos. And so I started sort of coming at it from a, I'm a blogger who creates tutorials and I host those tutorials on YouTube 
But it really was a matter of like a few weeks when I realized, oh, people are actually watching these videos on YouTube and they're commenting and they're subscribing and they're asking for more videos. And it just kind of snowballed into (laughs) an actual YouTube channel. And so I just published every week for the first year, a new blog post and a new video every week. And then I just kept going. And so over time, over the first couple of months, really, the channel was, I had more subscribers than page views on my blog, than Facebook page likes, Instagram followers, Pinterest followers, all that combined, I had more subscribers on YouTube and an active and engaged audience. They were commenting, giving me suggestions for new videos. And it, I just really sort of unplanned built this entire community and audience on YouTube. And I just sort of ran with it. That's really cool to hear. I, I love this niche selection story too, where it's like, okay, I want to help families do better video. There's plenty of stuff out there on how to take better pictures of your kids. There's plenty of stuff like how to become a professional filmmaker, but there's not so much like right in that middle spot of like how to do family videography. And that's kind of the sweet spot that you found. Yeah. Starting with the blog mentality first, it seems like that might be an advantage because if I go to make a video, the first thing I'm going to need is like a script. And if I already have it written out, that is maybe an advantage for me (laughs) versus starting YouTube is an intimidating place for me. And that's one of the reasons why I asked you on here. So what did the content production process look like? Was it video in mind first or blog post in mind first? At first, it was blog posts. I like kind of wrote out a blog post or an outline and then kind of fleshed it out as a blog post and then kind of picked out from there what was going to be in the video tutorials. Once you have a few videos on your channel and you can see what's working here, you can kind of look at your YouTube analytics, which are a lot more exciting than your regular Google analytics. (laughs) And you can see like what people are searching for to get to your videos, which helps you decide what more videos you can create on your channel. It started out thinking of the blog post first, but it sort of morphed into what's going to work on YouTube first. And then the blog post kind of gets formulated after. Is there anything specific you were looking for inside those YouTube analytics in terms of engagement or keyword volume? Because it's something that I've never actually dove into. Yeah. In the YouTube analytics, YouTube basically tells you what they're looking at. For example, they're like looking at your watch time. They're looking at your subscriber growth, but they're kind of putting everything in order of what they care about. So the first thing that you see when you open up your YouTube analytics is watch time and it gives you a number and tells you if you've gone up or down and then it tells you your views and then it tells you your subscribers. And so it's just kind of interesting because it puts watch time first in analytics. That's your clue that it cares about watch time. It's telling you we care about watch time because that's what we're showing you first here. And so you can look at your analytics for your whole channel. But what's really interesting is looking at the analytics for every single video. You can see your viewer retention. You can see how long people are staying on the video. That helps you determine whether you maybe need to improve your 
your script or your flow a little bit because you can see where people are dropping off because maybe they got bored. (laughs) Or by watching the video, you can see where people are dropping off and then you can kind of give yourself some clues as to maybe why and then you can improve it. Yeah, if you see a video like that where somebody drops off after 30 seconds on average, do you go back and try and re-record it at that point? Do you like a fly-in graphic or something to like catch their attention and keep people watching? (laughs) No, if that were the case, I would say just let it go (laughs) for a little while and then maybe publish a new video with, it could be the same exact topic, but it's a fresh new video. And because you want to look at what happened over the last 30 days, not like what happened over the last 24 hours (laughs) and, you know, just give the algorithm some time to kind of figure things out before you start like making rash decisions like that. Okay. When you're hiring, it feels amazing to finally close out a job search and hit the ground running with your new hire. But what if you could get rid of the search part and just get matched with qualified candidates? Well, now you can with our sponsor, Indeed. It's simple. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. The matching and hiring platform is trusted by over 3.5 million businesses worldwide to connect with great talent faster. And 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. For my next hire, I'm using Indeed to tap into a talent pool of 350 million unique monthly visitors. And what else is cool is Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use it, the better it gets. And how about this? Side Hustle Show listeners get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Side Hustle Show. Just go to Indeed.com slash Side Hustle Show right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Side Hustle Show. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. If you travel a lot for work or for vacation, you might be familiar with that feeling you get knowing you're leaving your space unused for long periods of time and you're still paying for that privilege. But hosting on Airbnb means you don't have to leave your home sitting empty when you're away. Being an Airbnb host isn't just a way to earn some extra cash. It's a chance to share your space and make a guest's vacation all the more memorable. You might be thinking, eh, maybe my place isn't the right fit, but don't write it off just yet. Your potential Airbnb might be right in front of you. Whether it's a spare room or even your entire home, there's an opportunity waiting. Airbnb turns your home into a practical and even profitable venture. We just got back from a family trip to Hawaii where we stayed in a great Airbnb, but our place back home could have been a highlight to somebody else's travels, and we could have used the extra cash to help pay for the trip. So if you're curious about hosting on Airbnb, find out how much your space could be worth by visiting airbnb.com slash host. Once again, that's airbnb.com slash host. Now, knowing that YouTube is prioritizing watch time, have you found a sweet spot of video length? Actually, no. For my channel and for me, it's all over the place from four minutes to 15 or 20 minutes, depending on if it's a tutorial or not. For me, there really isn't. I've heard people say, oh, it has to be at least 10 minutes. I've heard people say that it favors longer. It's really, it's more about how long people are watching, how many minutes people are watching for. So if I have a five-minute video and everybody watches the whole entire video, that would be like a miracle. But if that were to happen, that's five minutes of watch time per viewer. 
And if I publish a 20-minute video and I only get five minutes of watch time out of that, that's still five minutes, which is fine, but that's still only, what is that, 25% watch time, which is pretty low. So YouTube's going to say, wait, people are dropping off after just a quarter of the way. Maybe this isn't such a great video and they're going to stop recommending it. Okay. So the completion rate also plays a factor. Yeah, there is a balance there. The reason I ask is I was thinking of starting, I am starting the money-making minute as an Alexa daily briefing. And it's like, well, if I'm creating all this content anyways, how else could I repurpose it? And YouTube was one of those channels, but it's like, well, they're going to be one minute videos, which probably won't add up to a ton of watch time, but maybe I could win on this completion rate algorithm if I do it right. So yeah, but that still would be an interesting kind of strategy to start out with to give YouTube a try and see if you liked it, see if it worked for you, see if your videos got traction. Would you put that under a separate channel or just run it under my existing Nicoloper Side Hustle Nation channel? Do you have videos on the Side Hustle Nation channel? A few. <laughs> I mean, most of them are just placeholder image and then roll the tape from the podcast. But it's the same audience, right? Well, it's just I view it as a new discovery channel, right? Like it's another search engine for people to potentially find this content. I would put it probably just put it on your main channel. Yeah. Unless it was if you were, what's it called? Money Minute? Yeah, the Money Making Minute. Oh, money making minute. So if this was going to be all about making money, like trading stocks or something, that might be a different audience entirely than what you're trying to go after, perhaps. And so then you'd put it on a new channel. But I think it's probably you're just trying to attract more viewers and more audience for Side Hustle Nation, right? Yeah, now that I'm I'm actually in my uh, YouTube analytics right now, and I could see the videos of mine that have the most views over the last month are usually how-to videos, how to create a folder in Gmail, how to start a cleaning business, how to start a consulting business, how to start a vending machine business. So what that tells me is if I could do a specific video or even a specific podcast episode, because that's what most of those are, about these specific business models, how to start a XYZ business, that has historically done well or has tended to do well for me on YouTube. So that's something that the analytics is showing me. Yeah. It's interesting that you mentioned, well, I started the blog and the channel at the same time and the YouTube channel took off a lot faster. I had a very similar experience with the with this podcast. Like I considered myself a writer first. I'm not going to start this new blog project. And then almost as an aside, I was like, and I'll do this podcast because everybody says you got to have a podcast. And after the first year, the podcast had grown several times faster. And that's kind of what I became known for. And it was rewarding to do. I was like, well, let's focus more energy there instead of trying to write yourself blue in the face, pumping out this content that isn't going to have the same reach. Now, you mentioned publishing once a week on the blog and a video. How are you coming up with content ideas? Sometimes I struggle with that and trying to figure out especially staying consistent with that publishing schedule, but curious what your editorial calendar looks like. How are you coming up with these ideas? <laughs> At first, I was just kind of literally coming up with ideas out of thin air and then just doing a little bit of keyword research to see, are people searching for this? Do people even care? For example, I knew I wanted to help people create family videos, but nobody's searching how to create a family video. Well, I mean, some people might be searching that, but it's pretty broad. So instead, I 
for example, my family had a GoPro camera. So I thought maybe people need help using a GoPro. And so I started doing the research that just searching in, in Google, searching in like how to use a GoPro and seeing what other questions come up along with that. So I ended up starting with how to use GoPro Studio, which is a video editing software from GoPro that no longer exists. And people were searching for that. And there wasn't a whole lot of tutorials out there or blog posts or any content really. And so I just like, was like, well, there's my foot in the door. Let me just wedge it in there a little more. And I'll just create a whole series about this because I could see that there was a gap. This is in the like suggested search or the autocomplete in Google. Like you type in like GoPro and then and spacebar and then see what else shows up. Yeah, that's pretty much that's pretty much what I did there. As far as how I come up with my ideas now, it's based on what I know people are searching for. I know what people are searching for based on what common questions people are asking me. Like I get emails or Facebook inbox messages <laughs> asking some of the same questions. And so I also have a GoPro enthusiast Facebook group. And so people tend to ask the same questions in that group. So that gives me some really great clues as to what people really do need help with. Because if they're searching for it, I mean, if they're sending me an email, then I know there's like a million other people searching that same question into Google or YouTube. Hopefully it's a chance that they already Googled it and couldn't find the answer they were looking for. So maybe that's a sign, hey, there's a gap. That's usually not the case. They, <laughs> especially with the Facebook group there, or even really, I mean, my Facebook messenger inbox, a lot of times I want to say, did you type this question into Google before you messaged me about it? But I don't do that. I just help them find what they're looking for. Yeah. So I just kind of go from there. Since my content is very how-to and tutorial-based, that's just an easy way to kind of figure out what content to create. Okay. Yeah. That seems to perform well on Google. Are there any keyword research tools that are specific to YouTube? Yeah, there are a couple. One of them is called TubeBuddy, which I use. There's a free version of that, which is really helpful. Just without even upgrading to the paid, the free version is amazing. And what that does is it, they it, they call it, I think it's called the Keyword Explorer. And so you could just t- start typing in a topic and it will tell you, yes, there is volume for this keyword and what the competition is like for that keyword. And it will tell you that and then it will give you a weighted score based on your actual channel, which is really helpful. So it might tell you like, yeah, lots of people are searching for this and there's lots of competition. And no, we don't think you will have success with this because it's just not good. You know, so it'll tell you that, which is really helpful. So that's called TubeBuddy. There's also a fairly new tool called Morning Fame, which is kind of a, it gives you a kind of a fun way to look at your analytics and recommends what videos you should probably create based on what it's looking, seeing in your analytics. And then there's a keyword research component to it also, which is really, it's very in-depth and that one's pretty helpful. And then there's also one called vidIQ, which I don't use a whole lot, but it is a, a way to kind of analyze your existing content and other people's content and also research new topics. Is there a minimum search volume that you're looking for before you're going to go through the effort of creating a video? 
you know what? I don't actually look at the actual number. So I just go by usually what I do if I'm thinking, like if I kind of just come up with an idea off the top of my head, like how to start a vending machine business, for example, I would just go to TubeBuddy. TubeBuddy is a Chrome extension, by the way. So you just, you go to YouTube and you click the TubeBuddy icon. And I would just start typing in, typing in how to start a vending machine business. And it will just give you, a, it has a gauge of like, yes, this gets lots of traffic or no, this doesn't. And then it's same gauge for competition. And so you're looking for topics that have lots of volume, but low competition. Just like regular SEO, those unicorns out there that they still exist, but even though it seems like something is super competitive. Yeah. Have you found keyword videos that you wanted to make, but you were discouraged by the level of competition? So I'm not going to, I'm not going to bother with that. Usually what I do, I would say no to answer your question, because usually what that means is I just need to niche down a little more. Very broad topics are going to be very saturated. And so if you can niche it down to a more specific question or a more specific topic or problem that you're solving, then it's like having long tail keywords versus short tail keywords. Oftentimes, those niche down topics have less volume, but the competition is so much lower because it's a long tail keyword that nobody's, there hasn't been another like nerd out there like me to niche down and really fill that gap on YouTube. So you mentioned, okay, I'm going to create the blog post first. Are the videos just you standing in front of the camera reading the blog posts or how do you make it compelling visual entertainment? So no, I don't just stand there and read the blog post. What I usually do, a lot of my really good, like high performing videos with lots of views are tutorials where usually like a software tutorial, like a video editing software. So usually there's a screencast involved. I'll have a screencast of my screen, obviously showing how to do something. And then I'll have an intro, which is me talking to the camera, and then I'll have an outro. So I record the intro and outro with my camera, and then I record the screencast on my computer, and then I just edit them together. That's usually how it works for me. I'm kind of going through my blog archives, and I can see there are some posts, and maybe if, if you've been blogging for a while, maybe YouTube is the next frontier for you to repurpose some of your old content. I'm just trying to figure out how you might go about doing that. Basically, you can just use your existing content for essentially you have a bank of ideas and take those topics and you can use TubeBuddy or you can use YouTube's predictive search and just see, is this like happening? Is this going to have traffic on YouTube and kind of go from there? And then I like my videos and I teach people that each video should answer one question or solve one problem. And so you might have a blog post that if it's 2000 words, that might be three videos worth of content. So you could break it up. It really depends on on the content and the topic that you have, but it, you don't have to, YouTube video and your blog post don't have to be twins. They don't just have to echo each other. You might have a blog post that maybe there's just one specific part of that blog post that would be really helpful to have explained in a video. 
and maybe that topic would perform well on YouTube. And then you kind of have like a perfect storm essentially where it would make sense to embed it in that blog post and it goes with that blog post, but it also would make sense to put it on YouTube to get those views and traffic from YouTube. Okay. And then what are you using to do the video editing? I use Adobe Premiere Pro. There are a lot of video editing software options from like iMovie is free. A lot of people use Filmora or Adobe Premiere Elements. There are so many different options out there and it's like choosing a car. I think you kind of have to get the free trial and test drive it before you make a decision because they're even though they all perform the same exact functions, they all just kind of feel a little different. Yeah, fair enough. I've played around with a few different editing softwares and some of them it's like, I can't figure this out. And another one's it's like, well, that's a little bit more intuitive and, and there's a learning curve to any new software. And then maybe that leads into the next question is like, what is an expected time investment? If I am that blogger who already has some content and I want to go through this tube buddy process, like I can get incremental viewers to my content by syndicating the same or similar content to YouTube. But what's it going to cost me in terms of time to produce? Like how much time do you put into these videos maybe now versus when you started? Now versus when I started is probably about the same. For me, it's anywhere between, I would say, two hours a week to maybe four or six, depending on the video. How-to videos that involve a screencast are actually so easy and quick to put together because there's not as much editing involved. If you're just using the software and recording your voiceover, just explaining what you're doing, pretty much done. If you know what you're doing, you're you're done. You don't have to do a whole lot of editing. And if you don't know what you're doing, you shouldn't be making the tutorial. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So yeah, it could be anywhere from, I would say, two to six hours for me, but it doesn't have to be that long. I know people that spend an hour a week on it. It depends on your topics. It depends on the style video. And it depends a little bit on your level of perfectionism. (laughs) And so it is different for everybody, but it's not something that like you have to completely abandon one part of your blogging business to make room for YouTube. You can work it in just to what you're already doing. Yeah, we've seen, and actually from several guests recently, that YouTube was a major traffic driver where it's like maybe they weren't going to rank anywhere or or just like lended themselves, it lended itself to their business. And it was the microgreens farmer comes to mind where it's like a very simple, straightforward sales funnel where it's just getting a ton of traffic to this handful of YouTube videos. And that goes to the lead magnet and that goes to the autoresponder sequence, which goes to the course sale. That's one way to do it. And it's working really well for him. So let's talk about the return on that time investment. How does the VidProMom YouTube channel make money? My YouTube channel makes money through ad revenue from YouTube, which is through Google AdSense, and also through affiliate revenue and through sponsored content, which really those are the three ways that my blog makes money just on its own kind of recurring passive income. 
that's pretty much the gist there. (laughs) It's just those three things. I like to think of it as double dipping a little bit because if I have people watching my videos and I'm earning ad revenue on the video, and then I have people reading my blog post and I'm earning ad revenue on my blog, and it's the same topic and it's the same amount of research and it's just two different pieces of content on two different platforms. So therefore, twice as much ad revenue. I like it. I like it. And on the ad revenue side, have you found a metric for what is an expected amount per thousand views or per per subscriber or anything like that? Well, it is based on views and YouTube doesn't like to publish information about this. So like if I've Googled it before trying to get like a definitive answer and it's, they say it's between $3 per thousand views like between three and 12 or something is what I saw. It's a broad range. <laughs> really broad. Yeah. Well, it probably depends on the category of the content. It does. Yeah. That's what I was going to say. It depends on your niche because your niche depends on the viewer. And so the companies that are advertising on YouTube, the ad inventory is different depending on the niche. It's supply and demand. If there aren't a lot of people advertising, then there aren't going to be a lot of ads. You may not even have ads run on your channel if there are no ads to be run to your audience. It really, really depends on on your niche. And I think that's why YouTube does not like to talk about it because they don't want one person saying like, well, I make $10 per thousand views and my friend three dollars and well one of you is in a gaming niche and one of you is in like a horse riding niche or something you know it's like completely different audiences right it's like asking okay well what's the standard cpc for adsense it's going to be very across every different site i was just curious because we've been recently introduced to blippy and the baby shark video (laughs) for my son and it's like 1.8 billion views or something on this baby shark video and i'm curious about like the ad money on that because it's like I just want to show this video to my kid and move on with that. I'm I'm curious, like how many people are actually clicking on that or if they're just raking it in just on the raw number of views that this thing has. But yeah, they're probably raking it in. Yeah. Let's <laughs> just make a catchy song, with some kids and you're, and you're off to the races. So ad revenue, affiliate revenue and sponsored content. So the affiliate revenue comes from product review type of videos. Yeah. What have you found for, for those? This is you talking about the features and benefits of certain video accessories or video software? Well, for me, like a really good example for me, since I create a lot of GoPro tutorials, there's a lot of GoPro accessories. And so my affiliate revenue may not necessarily come from me doing a review video on something. It may just come from, I happen to be using an accessory and I mention it in the video and also mention hey, by the way, there's a link down in the description to get this accessory. Okay. Yeah, I was curious about that call to action. What I try to do as far as the call to action is you can put your affiliate links in the description just like you can in a blog post. You have to disclose this is an affiliate link and all that legal stuff. You have to put that in the description, but you can just drop your like Amazon links or whatever as long as the affiliate service or company you're using is okay with that, I should say. You can drop those into the description and then in your video, you can just mention the links are below. What I like to do is say something like, hey, I put direct links to this product, whatever it is. Hey, I put direct links in the description down below. That way you're kind of telling the viewer, this is the direct link. This is the exact 
one that you're looking for, the exact one I'm showing you in this video. And I also like to use Amazon affiliate links. And then sometimes I'll drop a Target or a Best Buy or a Walmart link in there too, so that I'm telling them they can check all of those places for the best prices. And then they're clicking all of them. I don't know if they actually do or not, but I'm giving them the option. Yeah, I like to mention that more than just, hey, I put links down below or hey, I put links in the description. I like that. I put the direct link. I'm going to make it easy for you. I put the direct link in the description. Yeah, this is the direct link. It just kind of draws attention, I think, to if in your mind, if you were thinking, oh, I kind of like that. And I'm telling you, here's the exact one. Like you should go get it right now. (laughs) You might be more inclined to click that link and actually make that purchase. Okay. Now that makes sense. I like that. And then tell me about the sponsored content side of things. Yeah. So sometimes I work with brands to, for example, I worked with Adobe this year on, I created, I think, I don't know, five or six different tutorials on using Adobe Premiere Elements, which is like the consumer level version of their editing software. So those were actual tutorials. They wanted me to create how-to videos for specific features and elements of the software. And they paid you to do it? And they paid me to do it, yes. That's awesome. (laughs) So a lot of times companies will say like, oh, we want to send you this product and you can do a review on your channel. And usually, nowadays, I usually say, I charge for that. And here's my price. A lot of times what they want, what they say they want is a review, but I don't feel like just a straight up review adds a whole lot of value. For my audience, I would rather do something where I'm showing you how to use it or showing you why you might want to use it. And mixed in there, give my opinion on it, (laughs) but it's not just, I try not to do just a straight up product review. Okay. Was there a certain subscriber base before either companies started reaching out to you for sponsored content or you said when people approached you for these reviews, you're like, hey, here's my here's my price sheet. It really wasn't that long after starting my channel that I got some company saying, hey, we want to send you this thing. But a lot of times it was like a little thing, like a $15 thing. So when I was just starting out, I was like, yeah, sure. Send it to me. That's great. It was really more, I would say about, I'm trying to think how many subscribers I would have had. It was around probably 15,000 subscribers that I started thinking, I feel like I should be charging for your product to be in front of my audience. When you consider that it's going on my channel, it's going on my blog, and I'm going to use my other social platforms to promote that content. Have you found any rules of thumb in terms of pricing for sponsored content like this deal with Adobe? Is it just based on similar to a podcast, like how many subscribers that you have or how many listeners you have? Yes and no. So you can use socialbluebook.com. I don't know if you use that for the podcast, but... I've never heard of this. You've never heard of Social Blue Book? Wow. No. So it's kind of like Kelly Blue Book for cars, but it's for bloggers and influencers. I think you connect it to your blog so it kind of knows your analytics. And then you connect it to your YouTube channel so it knows your subscribers. And you connect it to your Facebook page so it knows your likes over there and your Instagram and all that. And it gives you a number 
And then what I like to do is add more on top of that. (laughs) So (laughs) for the most part, though, what I'm finding with other bloggers that I work with, the ones who are doing video in general, not just YouTube, but maybe they have a really great video stuff happening on Facebook. The ones who are doing video are charging double versus just people who are getting sponsored content for a blog post. So what if you're a blogger and you work with brands and you do sponsored content and brand deals and you're not doing video, just take whatever you're currently charging people and double it. And that would be a really good reason to start doing some videos. Wow. Just because of the higher production value, higher yeah. perceived value of, of video content. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and it does, it is going to take you more time. So you do need to charge more for that. But the reach and I like to think of when you're creating a video for a brand, even though, even if it's on your channel, it's still an ass, like a pretty big asset that they can send people to or that they can include, they can embed your YouTube video on their website. And you've just created a really great asset for their website. So more so than just like, hey, we got this blogger to write a blog post for us. Do you still maintain that once a week publishing schedule or how important is a really consistent content calendar? It's my intention to maintain the once a week publishing schedule. But I do go through spurts where I just take a little bit of a break, but not like not for any reason, just because I'm behind or I'm working on something else or something. So, but yeah, once a week being consistent is still key when it comes to YouTube. Yeah, I was just curious if that's something that the the algorithm seemed to value or if it didn't matter, like if you're following your other guidelines, look, each video should answer one question, make sure it's engaging, all that stuff. Like it doesn't matter when you hit publish, but it's like, no, Monday morning at 9 a.m. A new video has gone up week after week after week. And they can see like, OK, this person is treating it seriously. They're treating it like a business. They're treating it like a TV show type of type of deal where it's like a very consistent content. When you hit publish, either at the very beginning or, or even today, do you do anything to give the algorithm a little nudge and say, I've heard of people, for example, saying, okay, I need views and I need comments and I need likes like within the first 24 hours of this video publishing. Do you do anything like that? Yeah. The first 24 hours is known to be important with YouTube. And so when you publish a video, it's a good idea to let all of your followers on all of your platforms know about it. Like there's no reason to wait until three days later to promote the fact that you just published a video. You really should do it that day. So usually what I'm going for is just like, go watch my video. That's that's pretty much my call to action. Naturally, like for me, I usually get comments anyway. Sometimes it gets really old to ask people like, leave a comment below if you like root beer or whatever, like some kind of like just random thing. And so like in my most recent video that I just published last week, I asked the viewers to give me a fist bump emoji in the comments if you're a member of my GoPro Enthusiast Facebook group. And so it was just a really quick, easy, fun way to make sure people are still awake and 
get them to leave a comment. And I got a lot. I actually was, hmm, this would be an interesting test. See if people are paying attention. And they were. Okay. Did you put that at the end, in the middle? Like, where was that call to action? That was in the middle. And it really wasn't something I planned on. I was just kind of recording the video and thinking, huh. I don't have anything to say about commenting. The video had t- something to do with a discussion we were having in the group. So it kind of made sense. So essentially what I did was instead of promoting the group and saying, hey, you should go join my group. I just kind of called out the fact that I have a group by saying, hey, if you're in the group, leave leave me an, a fist bump emoji which is just like, a, it's a different way of promoting the group, but also getting some engagement. Yeah. Then people who aren't in the group are viewing it and they see all these comments are like, shoot, I'm missing out. I better, I better go find this thing. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me about building the business off of YouTube in terms of your own email list, your own website, because all this stuff is great, but it's still like building a house on borrowed land in a way. So tell me about how you're driving people back to Facebook, like this example, driving people back to your email list. So like many people, I like to have some reason to give people to hop onto my email list. For example, I have a GoPro settings cheat sheet. A lot of times if I'm doing a video about GoPro stuff, I'll just mention I have this cheat sheet and you can print it out or save it to your phone for future reference. That gets them onto my email list so that I can email them either when I have a new video or I have a like a nurture, automated nurture sequence set up with my email. So I'm kind of like every week I'm dripping out content for them that they probably haven't seen before if they just joined. Okay. And who are, who are you using for your email service provider? I actually use Kajabi because that's my course platform and they have an email service within there. I, I've been using ConvertKit for about two and a half years. And I just recently switched to Kajabi because they have almost like the same exact features and functions that I that I was using in ConvertKit. And so it saves me a little bit of money each month by not having that extra service. Okay. People have mentioned Kajabi for course hosting. I didn't know they had email or, or CRM functionality too. Yeah. So that's the call to action, like on relevant videos, hey, go grab the GoPro settings, cheat sheet, anything else for for videos that may not be about GoPro? Yeah. So like I have an iMovie cheat sheet and I'm trying to think of any other ones. But what I try to do is I don't want every single video to send somebody away to go grab my cheat sheet. So I don't mention it in every video, only when it's really like it really makes sense. It's really relevant. Otherwise, I'd rather recommend like, hey, if you like this video, then go watch my next video on this topic and just keep them on YouTube. Yeah, so I put my opt-in links in the description of the video. Sometimes I might put them in as a comment and then pin that comment to the top. And I try not... Lately, I've been trying not to even mention it until the end of the video because people that watch till the end are the ones that you want to opt in to your list anyway, because they're the most engaged. This is one of my favorite tips is if you do, like I always, I recommend that you do a series. If you're just starting out on YouTube and you're trying to like visualize what in the world is my YouTube channel going to look like, starting with a series is a really good way to kind of jump into it because it's sort of fail proof because 
you're creating a resource that you can send people to. So even if it doesn't take off and your channel doesn't like just start growing magically from this one series, you've at least created a resource to send people to. And so with a series, you can have like in video number one, you're giving some content, giving some value, and you're telling people where they can grab your cheat sheet or your free whatever it is. Mine aren't always cheat sheets, almost always, but whatever your free opt-in is. And then in the second video, you're delivering value, delivering the content, and you're telling them, I have this great free cheat sheet, and you can head back to video number one to grab it. And so now they have to go back to video number one to get the link. And then in the third video, you're telling them, go back to video number one to grab the free cheat sheet. And then you just keep going and going. And you're always only linking back to video number one. So you're kind of funneling back to the beginning of your series, which is where they can opt into your list. And then from there, they can now like binge the whole rest of your series. For people who are just finding, maybe they found you through video number five. And they didn't even, they've never heard of you or didn't know you had a series. Now they know you have a series and now you've directed them to the front of that series and they can watch the whole thing and hop on your email list from there. Mm, I like it. I like it. Now, what's an example of a series that you have made? When I first started my, I did like a six video series on how to use GoPro Studio, which like I mentioned, that software doesn't exist anymore, but people are still using it. And so people are still finding those videos and they're like my first videos. So they're terrible. Isn't that always how it goes? You know, that stuff (laughs) you're like, "Ah, I'm kind of embarrassed by this, but it's still out there. Yeah. So I did a series in, I think April of 2017. I called it 30 days of GoPro. I set out to publish a new video every day for 30 days. And which didn't happen. It took me like six months. So I have a 30-day series and I did exactly what I just described. I have a freebie in the first video, a link to it in the first video. And then in every other one of those 29 videos, it sends them back to the first video. Okay. Is there a way in YouTube to group that series together so it just doesn't get mixed up with the rest of your feed? Yeah, yeah. You can group it as a playlist. So you, yeah, you add those videos to a playlist and then you can link to that playlist. So you can send people like, here's here's my series, here's my playlist. And it's a direct link. So all the videos will play in order if you're linking to the playlist. Nice. Okay. So VidProMom started 2015. At what point did you feel comfortable making the leap to doing this stuff full time? Well, so I started doing it full time in May of 2016 because I had a full time job when I started it. So I started VidProMom as a side hustle and I had intended to leave my job someday. Like, I'm, you know, the story everybody wants. I started a blog and then I quit my job. But my employer ended up moving my position like 700 miles away and I didn't want to move. So we kind of parted ways. They eliminated my position. And instead of going out to find another job, I just kind of dove headfirst into VidProMom stuff. All right. I'm going to be a full-time sink or swim time. I'm going to be a full-time YouTuber now. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's awesome. They had something to fall back on that you kind of had a little bit of optionality there. So not everybody's in that position. Yeah, for sure. And like, I think that's probably if I hadn't started it, I would have just gone to get a full time job because I wouldn't have had any other 
thing to do. If there's anybody listening to this podcast who's like, hmm, I think I might want to start a side hustle, just do it. Do it now before your employer moves your job 700 miles away. You never know what's coming down the road. At least take control of one little bit of your financial life. So yeah, what's next for you? What's yeah. got you excited coming up into this next year? My goal for 2019 is to help 10,000 bloggers get serious about YouTube. So I'll be doing that through my free five-day challenges and my free masterclasses. So that's my goal for 2019, 10,000 bloggers getting serious about YouTube. Maybe this is the year I finally get serious about YouTube. <laughs> um, where, where can I learn more? So I usually always have a either a free masterclass or a challenge coming up. And so you can get information about what's coming at vidpromom.com slash masterclass. All right. vidpromom.com slash masterclass. Meredith also hosts the Video Pursuit podcast to help other bloggers get started with YouTube. This has been awesome stuff. I've been taking notes the whole time. We will link those up for you in the show notes at sidehustlenation.com slash Meredith. Let's wrap this thing up with your number one tip for Side Hustle Nation. My number one tip, aside from just go ahead and start your side hustle now, just be yourself. If you're going to be doing YouTube or any video content, everybody is awkward on camera when they first start doing it. So if you feel like, oh, I don't know if I can do this, everybody feels that way. So it does take some practice, but it is a, it's such a great way to get yourself one step ahead of everyone else who's stuck saying, oh, I don't know if I can do this. So just, just be yourself and, and just go for it. That's really important to remember. Look, everybody's awkward on camera, especially when they start. Now, as you mentioned, hey, I'm an introvert, but I've got 3 million views. Does that make you nervous in some way that, look, there are all these people out there watching me and there's nothing I can do about it now? It doesn't make me nervous anymore. It used to. It used to bother me because I would think like, yeah, I want people to watch my videos, but yet I don't want people to see my videos. It was like, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want people, I don't want people I know yeah. to watch you. I want strangers. Yeah, actually a fun little side note. Early on when I started my channel, GoPro contacted me to do a giveaway of one of their cameras. And my husband called me. I was at work at my full-time job and he called me in the middle of the day and he was like, Hey, how do people enter to win the GoPro? And I was like, why are you asking me this? Like, why in the middle of the day? And I could tell that he was in the lunchroom of his work. He's a police officer. So he's in the lunchroom at the police department. And I'm like, why are you asking me? And he said, oh, the guys want to join to like win a GoPro. And I'm like, no, are you kidding me? No, because <laughs> I didn't want them to like get on my email list and then watch my videos. And I was just like so embarrassed. And it, like looking back, it's so silly now because so they ended up entering to win. And then I went in and I removed all of their email addresses <laughs> because I was just, I just felt so awkward and I was really embarrassed about it. Now I wouldn't care. I would just be like, whatever. It's the same way. Like when you're putting yourself out there to be serious and you're like, I'm, I'm trying my best here. It's like so vulnerable. I remember, you know, trying to practice my TEDx talk and I could not do it in front of friends or family. Like it was so weird to turn off regular jokey Nick and turn on, okay, this is like some serious stuff I want to talk about. There's, there's definitely an inertia to get over. And I, I like this advice. Just look, yeah. just be yourself. Everybody is awkward on camera. You got to start somewhere. So really good stuff, Meredith. Thank you for 
joining me again, vidpromom.com, vidpromom.com slash masterclass to get serious about YouTube. I'll see you over there and we'll catch up soon. All right, my top three takeaways from this call with Meredith. Number one is to start with what you have. If you've been blogging for any length of time, you probably already have a library of written content that could be relatively easily converted to video. After this chat with Meredith, for example, I'm looking through my archives and coming up with a list of potential videos I could make. The big benefit that I see is that a rough script or outline is already created. And if you don't want to be a full talking head, you could do the screencast thing like she mentioned, or even voiceover PowerPoint slides. That's one thing that I've done recently for both of those styles of videos is to set up my face just as a thumbnail insert, like picture in picture in the corner, so people could still see who's talking. Maybe that's important for building a relationship or, you know, I like to see who's behind the video, but I also don't need my mug necessarily to take up the whole screen. Let's take away number one, start with what you have. If you're, if you've been blogging already, you probably have a leg up on everybody else. Takeaway number two is that each video should answer one question. I thought that was a really helpful bit of advice. If I can focus on just answering one specific question, I'm good to go. I could even go through my archives of Q&A shows and pull out some interesting ones. Remember, we talked a couple weeks ago about keeping a log of all the questions you get. Those could be great fodder for YouTube videos. I've actually done this a handful of times by accident in the past with kind of quick screencast demo videos like here's how to install the Facebook Pixel or here's how to forward your domain email to Gmail. Even though there are probably hundreds of videos on those topics, they still have thousands of views. So remember that each video should answer one specific question. Takeaway number three is to use the suggested search and keyword research tools like TubeBuddy to prioritize what videos to make. In Meredith's case, it wasn't that other moms were specifically looking for the stated purpose of her blog or channel, you know, to better capture their kids growing up. But they were looking for answers to specific questions on how to use certain products, certain software. Meredith used those types of videos to get discovered and build a following. It's really similar to April Whitney a few weeks ago. You know, people weren't necessarily looking for petite fitness tips, but when they found April, the content was helpful and it resonated with them. So I think that's the takeaway. Peel back your big picture niche and see if you can start answering specific questions and position yourself as someone worth paying attention to. This conversation definitely got me excited about YouTube, and I hope it did for you as well, and gave you some concrete ideas on how to make the most out of the platform. Once again, for the full notes, links to all the resources mentioned, and to download the free PDF highlight reel with all of Meredith's top tips from the call, please visit sidehustlenation.com slash Meredith. That's it for me. Thank you so much for tuning in. Until next time, let's go out there and make something happen. And I'll catch you in the next edition of The Side Hustle Show, where you'll meet the founder of a really unique six-figure side hustle and learn if licensing or franchising could potentially accelerate your business. I'll see you then. Hustle on.